Well, hey, um, I have the great privilege today of introducing my favorite guy in the entire world. Um, he's my husband. I married him, so it's good that I like him. Um, Kip is... Kip is just, he's such a just down-to-earth guy. He's like a guy's guy. He slays deer and with a bow, nonetheless, which I think is super sexy. Um, but he's just really, he's a normal guy. He's, for those of you that don't know, some people think he's a doctor. I have no idea where that came from. He's not. He's in IT sales. Um, and the thing about him is his clients love him because he's just really honest about what he does. And um, God has just given him great favor in his lifetime, and um, he's overcome a lot, but he has done it with a lot of grace, and I just respect him so much. It's such a fun honor to get to lead um, with a great team, but with my husband by my side, it's something that not many couples get to do, and so we don't take it for granted, um, but the thing about Kip is that he did not seek out the opportunity to preach. God literally just kind of plopped him in it, and a few of us were like, yep, you're going to do it. Okay, go ahead. And um, he's a really good communicator, and so I'm excited to hear him preach as his wife. I've heard him down in the basement. I asked him last night to preach to me, and he blushed and said no. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, Kip, if you want to come on up. He's a great daddy. He loves his sons. I'm excited for you. So... Thanks, babe. So this week, I, I requested that Heidi intro me on purpose. And uh, part of that was um, because she is such an encourager. But what you don't know about her is that she, she has a tendency to make me blush in a good way. And uh, after I requested that she intro me, I thought, this might not be such a good idea. And, uh, and so we had to give her purposeful instructions during pre-run-through <laughs> to keep it PG, and she did. Um, we obviously struggle with keeping it PG. She's a, a babe having a babe. I think, uh, it, you know what, if you are here with your spouse or significant other, I think we should call each other babe more often, shouldn't we? I mean a term of affection or, or hun or whatever you call your significant other if it's if it's PG or below, if it's not uh, whispered in their ear. But if you're here with your spouse or significant other, why, turn to them and say, I love you, babe. I love you, babe. Well, that was fun. <clears throat> well, hey, before we get started today, if it's okay with everybody, I'd like to get started and pray. Father God, we just thank you for this amazing opportunity to be in your house this morning. Lord, it, it is a privilege to be here. It's a, a privilege and a blessing to be in this facility specifically, Lord. We thank you for um, granting us access to such an amazing place. We pray um, just to honor those that have allowed us to be here. Lord, we pray that uh, your spirit would be in this place today, Lord, that we would hear from you, that the words that you have given uh, me to share, Lord, that they would Touch the hearts of those that are here, and that if there's anyone here specifically that needs to hear this word, Lord, that you would open their heart and open their mind to hear it. Lord, we thank you for an amazing worship band that can lead us in worship and, and present just an amazing time together. And Lord, we just thank you again for sending your son Jesus for us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, 
today we're going to continue in our series on heroes, and we've had a couple weeks of heroes, and we're going to have a couple weeks more, but today we are going to talk about what, in my opinion, is the most dynamic, influential, arguably most important person to ever walk the face of the earth, bar Jesus himself. You know, pop culture has this idea of what a hero is, right? So a hero, if we watch the movies, um, all the different kind of comic book movies, um, the hero is, is strong and bold and courageous, fearless possibly. You know, they're typically the type of person that's extremely confident. Maybe they're really good looking. But they're generally the type of person that just takes life by the horns, Pop culture has given this this idea of a hero and a heroine, and that's great and it's fun, but today we're going to talk about a real-life hero, somebody that changed the course of history from the day that he lived on. If I had to ask you, if you had to guess who I'm talking about, some of you might know and some of you won't, most influential, most dynamic, most life-changing person other than Jesus in the New Testament, who would you guess? Anybody? Shout. Paul? That's right. We're going to be talking about the Apostle Paul. You see, if you're here today, you are part of the single largest movement of mankind in the history of mankind. You are part, if, if you call yourself a Christian, you are part of a 2.2 billion people movement. Of the 7 billion people on the planet, Christianity is by and far the largest religion there is. And you're part of that movement. You're part of that movement, though, and I would argue because of the Apostle Paul. To break it down for you how important Paul is, just a little bit of rudimentary education, the Bible is broken up into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is everything before Jesus, and the New Testament is everything since Jesus. In the New Testament, it's broken up into 26 books of the, of the New Testament, and Paul wrote 13 of those books. 14, if we include Hebrews, we're not exactly sure who the author was, but regardless of if it's 13 or 14 books, the point is, is Paul was incredibly instrumental in the New Testament. So we know a few things about Paul. Uh, the Bible is somewhat sketchy on his per personal life, but we know, we know a little bit about his life before conversion. We know a little bit of his life after conversion. A few things about Paul so you can get to know him a little bit better if you haven't heard a teaching on Paul before. Paul was, uh, had both citizenships. He was a, citizen, a Jewish citizen and a Roman citizen. His mother was Jewish. His father was Roman. And this is going to be very important later on in life. Um, it's going to be instrumental in his ministry, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Paul was educated in the Torah, and he was also educated in Greek culture. Um, he had significant education in both, and we know this because Paul was a Pharisee. A Pharisee, think of it as a master's degree or PhD in religion, okay? And because he had such a high level of education, we know that he probably came from a wealthy family. And we know this because, like today, in order to have kind of that upper echelon of education, you had to come from a wealthy family. And unlike today, they didn't have student loans. And so in order 
to have a college degree in Greek and in Latin in a number of different languages. And in order to be a Pharisee, he had to have a significant level of education, and that took money. We also know that he probably came from a wealthy family because his father was a tent maker, and that was a lucrative um, job to have in that time. And so Paul, like his father and like was tradition of the time, also became a tent maker again. So he was independently wealthy, came from a wealthy family. He had dual citizenship, and so he was, you know, perfectly poised for this ministry that he's going to find himself in later in life. Sadly, we also know a little bit about what Paul looked like. As we were saying, in the movies, the hero is often incredibly good-looking and buff and strong. It's a hero or a heroine. They're generally attractive people. Paul, not so much. We don't know a lot about the scriptures, or we don't know, the scriptures don't tell us a lot about the way Paul looked, mostly because in biblical times, not just for Paul, but for everybody, appearance wasn't really important, and so there's not a lot of descriptions on appearance. The Bible tells us that Paul was short in stature, but that's really all it says. But if we look at other first century and second century references to Paul, other kind of oral traditions and pieces that are out there, we get an idea of what Paul looked like. If you've been watching the biblical, uh, the Bible stories from, that were on TV last year, and if you haven't watched those, I really encourage you to, the way that they present Paul isn't exactly the way history presents Paul. We know that Paul, it says, was small in size, ball-headed, bow-legged, well-built, so he had that going for him, with eyebrows that met in the middle, a rather long nose, and he was full of grace. The full of grace piece was added to the end. It was kind of like, well, he's a cute baby. <laughs> it's, he had a nice personality. He had eyebrows that met in the middle. So basically what we just described here is a first century Jewish troll. Um, <laughs> eyebrows that met in the middle, was the political way of saying, politically correct way of saying he had a unibrow. But we first meet Paul in Acts. And so today we're going to be going through Acts, Acts 6, 7, and 8. And so if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and pull it out. And we're going to be going through a fair amount of Scripture, and so you can follow along. But Paul, as you may or may not know, had two names. He had his Jewish name, Saul, and his Greek name, Paul. And that was from birth. Um, there's a little bit of misconception that Paul changed his name. No, he always had two names. It was um, common, although it was uncommon to be have dual citizenship. For the small amount of people that did, they would have their Jewish name and their Greek name. And so Saul was his Jewish name. Paul was his uh, Greek name. And so in just a little while, Saul is going to experience a life change. And when he does, he's going to experience a name change. But before we meet Paul, our hero today, we need to understand Stephen. And so we're going to read about Stephen in Acts 6, 8. And it says, Stephen, a man full of grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia, 
and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and spirit for which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen. So false accusations. We're going to come back to this. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We've heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders and the teachers of the religious law. So think, uh, you know, all of his peers, uh, uh, Paul's peers, the Pharisees, so to speak. So they arrested Stephen and they brought him before the high council. So they've falsely accused him. They falsely testified against him, and now he's being falsely imprisoned, and he's, bringing, he's being brought in front of, I uh, think, the, uh, the Supreme Court of the United States, but for religious affairs. The lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So I'm going to stop for just a second, and I want to go back to this. Verse 14, we have heard them say that this Jesus. Hear me when I say the issue then and the issue now is always about Jesus. If you're doing something, following Jesus, pursuing Jesus, proclaiming the name of Jesus, you will experience stiff opposition and resistance. We experience this as leaders every week, as leading a part of this church. Every time we take a step forward or two steps forward, the enemy pushes back. And so if you're following Jesus, you will experience resistance. I think we've done a disservice in our culture of presenting the gospel in a way that, hey, if you just follow Jesus, your life will be better. Man, I don't know that to be true. Yes, your life is better from the standpoint that you have a relationship from Jesus, but the darkness isn't going to sit here and allow you to push back on it without resistance. So at this point, the high council stares at Stephen. And so it goes on to say, at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel. So what's happening here is Stephen's been falsely accused, falsely testified against, falsely convicted, and he's sitting there basically in court, and he knows what's coming, guys. He knows what's coming, and he keeps his calm. He stays calm. He stays composed. He doesn't get angry. He doesn't get defensive. This is the Holy Spirit shining through Stephen. You think in this moment, like we just sung about, he's singing to himself, you know, that the enemies will surround me. He's probably thinking that in the back of his head. Or maybe he's just thinking, keep calm and preach on. I don't know. <laughs> but for the sake of time, and I'm not going to go into it, but if you have time later this week, please take a note. Go back and read in Acts 6-7. After the accusations come against Stephen, he responds with one of the most incredible responses slash sermons that has ever been spoken. He, he has this compelling sermon, and what he does in the sermon, which is interesting, is up until that point in Jewish culture, it was believed that all of the stories of the Old Testament were individual stories about individual people in individual circumstances. And what Stephen does is he goes back and he says, no, every story in the Old Testament, every single one, every story, every person, every prophecy points to one person, Jesus. 
So after he gets done responding, the scripture goes on. It says, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusations, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing in a place of honor at God's right hand. Then they put their hands over their ears and they began shouting and they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and they laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And this is Paul. This is our hero that we're going to be talking about today. Sorry, I've been dealing with a little bit of a head cold this week. So, so Saul is in verse 58. And this is the first time that we read of Saul or Paul. And it's the first time that Paul walks on to the world stage. And Saul is there when all of this is happening. Saul is there when Stephen has been falsely accused, falsely testified against, falsely imprisoned, and now he's going to be falsely executed. And so what happens is they take, they take Stephen and they drag him out to the gates. And they drag him out there because they're getting ready to execute him. And they circle around him. And what happens is if you've seen pictures or movies, the Jewish people at the time, they had these cloaks. They, they covered their shoulders. They would button or tie in the front. They would go down mid-calf. And the reason that they're taking their cloaks off is because like a baseball pitcher that comes out of the bullpen and he's got to warm up, man, you can't throw a stone very hard if you've got this cloak over your shoulders. And so they're taking their cloaks off and they're laying them down in front of Saul and they're warming up because they're going to throw some stones at this guy and they're going to kill him. I was going to bring a stone today to pass around just so you could get your hands wrapped around how brutal a way to, to die this is. You know, hopefully you take one to the head on the first throw, and you're unconscious, and it's done. But chances are probably not. And so what happens is, without being really gruesome, you basically die of internal bleeding if you don't get hit in the head. And so they throw Stephen down. They circle around him. They take their cloaks off. They lay him at the feet of Paul, Saul, and they're going to stone him, and they do. But what happens here? What happens as Stephen is being stoned? The Bible tells us, Full of the Holy Spirit, Stephen gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus, again, standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Stephen sees Jesus standing. But wait a minute. Kings don't stand. Kings sit. Kings sit. You stand. If you go into a king's chambers, the king doesn't stand for you. You stand, and you stay standing. But yet here in the scriptures, we see that it says that Stephen sees Jesus standing. Jesus, the anointed king of heaven and earth, is standing in this vision that Stephen has. Why is Jesus standing? Well, if you don't know, I'm a hunter. My wife just shared that with you. And the thing that's true about hunters is, man, we get up early, really early, 3.30 in the morning early. 
I just have to give a shout out to my wife. For like four months, she's put up with me getting up at 3.30 in the morning. She hasn't really said much. Maybe a grumble here or there. <clears throat> Don't wake me when you get out of bed. We get, a, we get up early in the morning and we hunt till late in the evening. And the reason that we do that is because animals, particularly deer, like to move at sunrise and sunset. And in the evening, there is this time called the magic hour. It's something that us hunters call it. And you've probably, even if you're not a hunter, you've experienced this time. It's that time a half an hour before official sunset and a half an hour after official sunset, that last hour of daylight, when everything just kind of pauses. The wind sets down, the sun's rays get long, the temperature kind of gets to that weird temperature and it's peaceful. You've been out on your porch maybe, or working in the yard, or at a baseball game, and you've felt that. And as a hunter, when that magic hour comes, we get excited because something's gonna happen. Something incredible is going to happen. Something exciting is going to happen in that magic hour. And so when the magic hour comes, we stand up and we get right on the edge of the stand. And we are intent on everything that's happening around us. And if we see a deer, man, we are focused in because we know something incredible is about to happen. And that is what's happening here. Jesus stands up because he knows something incredible is about to happen. The parallels between Stephen and Jesus are not coincidental. Jesus, falsely accused, falsely testified against, falsely convicted, and falsely executed. And now the exact same thing has happened to Stephen. And I might add that on the cross, as Jesus is taking his last breath, he asks that the Father forgive them. And Stephen does the exact same thing right here. Stephen says, as they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Literally, as Stephen's life is being taken from him, he asks for forgiveness of the people that are stripping him of his life, knowing that he's done nothing wrong. Wrongfully accused, wrongfully testified against, wrongfully convicted, and wrongfully executed. And during this whole process, there is Saul. Saul is presiding over this entire thing. And this is one of two catalyst events in Paul's life. This, an event that we'll get to in a minute, are what I believe set the tone for the ministry of Paul. And Jesus, during this whole thing, he's there too. And Jesus is literally saying by standing up, because of the act of forgiveness that Stephen is asking for in this moment, in such a wrongful act, I will stand for this because Jesus knows what it is to be wrongfully accused, wrongfully, wrongfully convicted, and wrongfully executed. And then in the midst of all that, ask for, for the forgiveness of the people that are doing it to him. Saul is a witness. Like I said, he's orchestrating this whole thing. 
approving Saul. Happy Saul. Saul isn't sad about this, you guys. Saul is sitting there going, lay your coats at me. I'm orchestrating this whole thing. Let's stone this guy. He's happy about it. The Scriptures tell us Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. He isn't remorseful about it. In fact, he's emboldened by it. Now he's killed Stephen. Now the gate, the floodgates are open, man. He can go after everybody. Instead of feeling remorseful, he's going to actively and violently go after Christians all throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding areas. Acts 8. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over Jerusalem. And all the believers, except for the apostles, were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. But Saul was going around everywhere, destroying the church. Everywhere. Everybody. He's killing everybody up in here. He's going everywhere to find these guys. It says dragging out both men and women. When I play with my son Crosley, sometimes when we're messing around and tackling, I'll grab him by his foot and just drag him all through the house. That's what's happening here. He's knocking on doors. Instead of just seeing people kind of grouping together in Jerusalem and having conversations about Jesus, he's beating on doors and saying, who's in here and do you follow Jesus? Because if you do, you're coming with me. He uses violence. And so after he pursues all these people in Jerusalem, they finally get tired of it. And they scatter. They leave Jerusalem and they go out into the surrounding areas. And one of those places that they go to is a place called Damascus. And so Saul, emboldened and brave about his persecution of the Christians, goes to the high priest and instead of, you know, just kind of doing it on himself, he says, hey, I want to go chase after these guys. I want to go find these guys that are call themselves Christians and I'll arrest them and I'll bring them back to you. And the high priest says, sure. Go for it. And so Saul gets his peeps, his mercenaries. Man, I just had to get this thing out. (laughs) He gets his peeps. He gets his mercenaries. He gets other people like him that hate Christians, and they're going to go after him. I'd really like to pass this around, but it's probably not a good idea. I brought this out because I wanted to give you an example. I mean, this is what's going on, guys. This is what's happening. Saul, isn't this just like, hey, do you love Jesus? You do? Well, hey, let's have a conversation about it. No, he's got a sword. He's got a group of people, an army. The Bible tells us it's a mission. He goes out on a mission. A mission is a military term. He is going after people with swords and stones, and he's binding them and dragging them back to be tried, tried, and executed or jailed. And so, skipping over to Acts 9, we find Saul on his way to Damascus. We find that he's going to continue his persecution and it says in verse 3 as he's approaching Damascus on his mission a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him Saul Saul why are you persecuting me who are you Lord Saul asked with the voice replied I am Jesus the one you are persecuting now get up and go into the city 
and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they had heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by hand to Damascus. Saul, bold, brave, confident Saul, gets kicked off his horse. I think that we can take a little bit of training from this because some of us probably need to be kicked off of our horse. Nobody's probably going around with a four and a half foot sword or stones or a group of people killing Christians. At least I hope you're not. And if you are, please see David Klein after this. But what is probably happening, and something that we don't really click in our brains, but what probably is happening is some of us are probably spending way too much time, way too much energy, way too much emotion, way too much resources pursuing something that isn't bringing glory to God. That's what Saul's doing. I'll be the first to admit, don't, don't hear me wrong, passions are good. Man, if I was honest, with myself and probably everyone here, I probably spend way too much time, way too much emotion, way too much white brain space, too much money <laughs> on hunting. Passions are good. We have to have passions. Guys, we have hobbies and all that, fantasy football, softball, hunting, fishing, whatever you're into. But just hear me. That None of that is ultimately doing anything for the kingdom of God. It's good to have, and absolutely, you have to have an outlet for your passion. But maybe take a minute and think, man, is this really something that ultimately is going to change the life of anybody? And so Saul goes into Damascus where he remains blind for three days. He's, is, the Bible tells us he doesn't eat. He's probably scared, right? I mean, here's this confident guy, and now he can't see. He can't do anything. He has to be led by hand into Damascus. He's completely helpless. He doesn't know if he'll ever get his eyesight back. And then it tells us in the Scriptures that Ananias hears from God, and he's told to go to Saul and, re and heal his eyesight, giving him back his eyesight. And so at that moment, Saul who's killed people, arrested people, murdered people, basically done everything that he can to stop the church of Jesus Christ, becomes a juggernaut for pursuing the faith and the ministry of Jesus. He goes into all the surrounding area from that point on, into every town, regardless of the dangers that await him, sometimes walking as much as 20 miles a day, shipwrecks, Sore feet. He gets flogged and beaten. He gets spit on. He basically gets disliked everywhere he goes, and yet it doesn't stop him. This moment is the second catalyst. He got to be a part of watching a man have his life taken from him, and in that very moment, ask for forgiveness, and then just a short time later, 
gets to experience that same forgiveness. He gets to experience being forgiven for something that nobody should be forgiven of. Paul, our hero, starts to go out and boldly proclaim the message of a worldwide Savior. I don't know if I can emphasize enough that this is a radical new piece of information, guys. There is no other religion in the world up to that point that preached a worldwide Savior. Every religion had a Savior for this group of people, Savior for this group of people, Savior for this group of people. Some of them were animals, some of them were statues, some of them were made-up animals with horses, with human heads and bodies and all sorts of crazy stuff. The point is, a worldwide Savior, a Savior for everybody, is a radically new idea. A Savior that can save anyone, for anyone, can forgive anything, for anything, is a radical new idea. And so Saul of Tarsus goes out witnessing the forgiveness that Stephen granted and now experiencing the forgiveness that Jesus has given him. He goes out. And a person that is saved that radically preaches a radical salvation. That is the power of Paul's conversion. So in a minute, I'm going to wrap up, but I wanted to share something with you guys before I do. Paul, as we know, again from the scriptures and reading other third-party accounts of his personality, was a bold person. He was a confident person. He was not scared of anything. But the power of Paul's ministry isn't his personality. That's part of it. But the power of Paul's ministry was the content of his ministry. Paul was a radically forgiven man. Someone by his own admission should not even be forgiven. Yet Paul takes a message of forgiveness to a world that needed to hear it. And it catches on like wildfire. A world full of hurt people that are hurting other people. A world full of people holding grudges and looking for their next opportunity to exact revenge for whatever hurt that they had been caused against them. And Paul goes out and Paul says, man, that's not the way to do it. You got to remember this, all of this region is operating under the premise of an eye for an eye. And Paul comes and says, that's not, what's, that's not the way we're going to do it, guys. I got a new story for you. Yet, in the midst of Stephen's execution, he forgives Paul. He forgives those stoning him, and most importantly, he forgives Paul. Hear me when I say this. Forgiving someone is about setting your heart right with God. Absolutely. You have to set your heart right with God as your asking for forgiveness in your life. But if somebody has wronged you, forgiving them frees them too. Stephen forgives Paul, and Paul goes on to change the world, you guys. If Stephen hadn't forgiven Paul, 
And Paul didn't have the opportunity to see what just incredible forgiveness looks like. And maybe he doesn't go on. Maybe he doesn't go on to preach the gospel. Maybe he doesn't go on to make it such that you're here today. If you're anybody other than an Orthodox Jew, and I don't think we have any Orthodox Jews in here, you are a Gentile, and you are here because of what Paul did. Setting the person that has wronged you free by forgiving them enables them to go on and do great things. If you're not forgiving them, you are hindering not only your heart, but their heart. And they may never become the person that they're supposed to become until you do forgive them of that. When you forgive somebody, you have no idea what they might become or what they might do. Stephen forgave Paul, and Paul became our hero that changed the world. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come to you today, Lord, that we ask that you would set just a spirit of forgiveness in our hearts, Lord. Lord, it is through your grace, Lord, through your Son, Jesus Christ, that we have the ability to be forgiven and to forgive others. And so you have set the bar so high, so incredibly high, that there is no excuse for us to ever hold a grudge. There is no excuse for us to ever exact revenge or payment for any debt that's owed to us. Lord, we pray that you would set in our hearts, Lord, at this very moment, moving forward from this very day, just an attitude and a spirit of forgiveness, that we would never be a group of people that would be vengeful, be hateful, to tally up debts of those who have sinned against us. Jesus, our goal every day is to be more and more like you. And the only way that we do that is we become a people that is forgiving because we have been forgiven. Father God, thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you for sending a savior, a worldwide savior, for anybody and everyone. All they have to do is turn to you and believe. Lord, we love you. Lord, thank you for what you've done. In your name we pray.